Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, friends, we've been going through our series on prayer and looking at different prayers in Scripture as a way to learn to pray, that the Scriptures would inform our prayers, that they would teach us to pray. And so we started with the Lord's Prayer, then we looked at uh, the parable of the friend in need, last week Hannah's prayer, prayer of desperation, and this week Psalm 51. And so the Psalms are the prayer book of our Scriptures. And they are there to teach us how to pray, how to talk to God. And so they are a way for us to pray our lives. They give us the words to pray uh, what's happening in our lives. And also they're there to shape us so that we would live out our prayers. So they are both expressive and shaping. God wants honesty in our prayers. He's not looking for, <clears throat> for nice. So the question is, what do we say to God when we've blown it? What do we say when we've done something bad? Many people that I talk with think, you know, I think God's pretty pleased with me. I'm a good person, and they take comfort in being a good person. But what happens when you're not? What happens when you're not a good person? Where is your hope then? Is there any hope for anyone who have, who's done bad things? 
A lot of people think that Christianity is about guilt, about making people feel guilty and then leaving them there. Well, Christianity is about realizing our guilt, but it's never about leaving us there. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that it gives us something to do with our guilt. It's a relief for our guilt, and that is good news. So, as we dig into Psalm 51 now, let's pray together. And I'm going to pray for us this morning another section of a prayer from the Valley of Vision prayer book. So, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are blind. God, be our light. We are ignorant. God, be our wisdom. We are self-willed. God, be our mind. Open our ears to grasp quickly your Spirit's voice and to delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt our consciences so that no hardness remains. Make him alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, may we flee to your wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be our good shepherd and lead us into the green pastures of your word and cause us to lie down beside the rivers of its comfort. We ask it in the name of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So Psalm 51 is a prayer of confession. And uh, I want to give you the backstory to this psalm. It's written by David, the king of Israel. David, who conquered, killed Goliath, the young shepherd boy that took on the giant. Uh, David is the writer of many of the psalms. And this particular psalm, Psalm 51, its background is a story in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And in that story, it starts off and it says, it was springtime. It was time when kings went to war, but David stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And so he's at home while all his men are off fighting. And he's walking on his roof, and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing. And she is a married woman. And so he sends for her, arguably takes her, commits adultery, and she becomes pregnant. Oh no. What's he going to do? Well... His sin doesn't just stop there, but it continues into a plan of cover-up, of deception. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring back Bathsheba's husband. His name's Moriah. He's one of David's men on the battlefield. And so he says, you know, I'll bring him back and I'll bring him home for respite from war, for a little re relief. And then he can go and be with his wife and he'll think the pregnancy is from his trip home. 
So he sends for Uriah, right? Uriah comes back and he comes to the palace and David says, go home, rest, go be with your wife. And Uriah says, no. How on earth could I go home and rest and be with my wife? My men are on the battlefield. I will wait here on your steps until you send me back. Uh-oh. <laughs> the cover-up isn't going to work, is it? And so David goes even further. He doesn't come clean here. He doesn't say, oh no, here's what I've done. He's, he takes the plan even another step. And he says, you know what? Okay, I'll send you back. So he sends him back and he tells his general, I want you to send Uriah to the front lines, to the most violent fighting there is, right? And as the men are lined up, I want you to call for them to step back and Uriah will be left on the front line by himself and be killed. Yikes. So he does it. He sends Uriah back and Uriah is killed in battle. And he uh, then takes Bathsheba as his wife. Then God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan comes and he tells him a story. He says, I want to tell you a story, David, about two men who lived in a certain city. One was a very rich man. One was a very poor man. And the rich man had many flocks, many herds, but the poor man had just one lamb, one little ewe lamb. And the poor man took that lamb and he was like the family pet. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was like the family pet. And so that little lamb was part of their family. They would eat with it. They would sleep with it. Um, if this family had a Christmas card, that little ewe lamb would have been in the, in the Christmas card family picture, right? And so it would eat out of their hand, drink out of the cup. It was precious to them. So one day, the rich man has a visitor. And he doesn't want to feed his visitor any of his lambs from his flock, from his herd. And so you know what he does? He goes and he takes the poor man's one little ewe lamb, the family pet, and he kills it and he feeds it to his guest, right? And so David hears this story and he is outraged. He says, this man must die. He must die and he must pay back the poor man fourfold of what he's taken. And the prophet Nathan says, you're the man. And it's at that moment that he finally bends. And he says, I have sinned before God. And he writes the psalm that we heard this morning, Psalm 51. What an incredible story. Before we get into the psalm, I want to even say this. We need Nathans in our lives whether you're King David or 
a poor family with one little ewe lamb. You need Davids in your lives. We need people that can call us out when we're in the wrong. And guess what? That doesn't just happen. You have to invite that in. So I ask you, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone that can pull you aside and go, what are you doing? You're the man. You're the man that's done these things. We need that. I need that. I have that. I have a couple uh, really good pastor friends that we've given each other permission to just speak in and say, when you see stuff, you've got to call it out. You've got to tell me. You've got to make me aware. So for David, is there any hope? Is there any hope for us when we make these mistakes? What do we say to God when we screw up, when we sin? Well, let's take a look at David's prayer of confession. And as we're learning to pray, this prayer is a great model for us in how to confess sin before God. So let's take a look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So David starts with an appeal to God's mercy. It is his personal God. He doesn't appeal to the universe. He doesn't appeal to nature. He appeals to the God he knows for mercy. Have mercy on me according to what? Your unfailing love. According to what he knows about God, according to his great compassions, he says, blot out my sin. Now, both adultery and murder had no sin offering in ancient Israel. And so both of them, if you were guilty of those, that brought the death penalty. There was nothing that you could do to sort of purify yourself and re-enter the community. You were actually sentenced with death. And so what David's asking is impossible. He's asking God to do the impossible. He's saying, put your mercy between you and me. And he appeals to his steadfast love. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's covenant relationship. According to all that you've promised, according to your word, be merciful to me. Blot out my transgression. The, the picture here is like an ancient scroll, right? And so what David's acknowledging is there's a record of what I have done. And he's saying, Lord, take your record of of my wrongdoing here and blot it out. Erase it from the scroll that it wouldn't be known anymore. We might think sometimes, you know what? Nobody saw what I did. But God sees. And there is a record. And so David says this. He says, wash me. David recognizes that God must do something because he cannot. 
And so he says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verses 2 and 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. In the Shakespeare play, Lady Macbeth, after she uh, kills her husband, she has this incredible guilty conscience. Okay, so uh, she has this line, here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And so in her guilt, she goes a little crazy and she thinks that there's blood on her hands and she keeps trying to wash it off. But no amount of washing will take away her blood-stained conscience, her guilty conscience. And this is what David's getting at. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. The image is of scrubbing. It's not throw on some OxyClean and throw it in the wash. It's this constant scrubbing. And David says, wherever I look, I see my sin there. There's no escaping it. There's no amount of scrubbing that's going to take it away. And so what David's doing is he's owning it. Back at verse 1 and 2. He owns it. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. David is guilty and he's owning his guilt. The word transgression is knowingly rebelling against God. David knows it was wrong and he does it anyway. Iniquity, you know what iniquity is? Is It's a self-deception. Uh, it's trying to convince myself, this isn't really wrong. I, I can do this thing because... It's not really wrong, all right? So iniquity is a little bit different than transgression. Transgression, I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. Iniquity, I'm going to convince myself that it's not wrong. And sin, which is just simply defined, is missing the mark. Here's God's standard and I didn't hit it. And you know what David's saying? I'm guilty of all three. And I'm going to own all of it. And then he says... Against you alone have I sinned and done what is wrong, what is evil in your sight. How can he say that, right? How can he say against you alone? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the whole nation that he is leading. Well, here's the thing. Sin at its core is turning from God. It's making something or someone our source of comfort, joy, or satisfaction. And so he says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, I remember um, when the girls were, I think about maybe two or three 
Kirsten and I taught them how to sin. They didn't know how to lie or anything, and so we taught them lying. No, we didn't. Right? You don't have to teach a kid to sin. You don't have to teach them, oh, if you yank the toy away from the other one. No, they just, that's already in there. It's built in. They tell lies not because they learned it somewhere. It's built in there. They're born with it. And that's what David is saying here. I was sinful at birth. It wasn't something that just happened to me. It's always been there. My mother conceived me in it. David knows his condition. And sin is like treason. Overthrowing the rule of the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one to whom we owe everything. Every sin against God is cosmic treason. And so that means this, that God is justified in his verdict. So David owns it. Do we? Do we own our sin like that? That is the first step of the Christian faith, to say, Lord, I have sinned against you. It's a recognition of that sin. And then what David does is he calls upon God to act. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch that had these uh, sort of threads kind of hanging from the branch. And it was the branch that they would use with ceremonial cleaning. And so the branch would be dipped and then sprinkled on people. Okay, so he's saying, do that to me, God. Cleanse me with the hyssop branch. Sprinkle me clean. Wash me. And then in verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Who here has had a broken bone? Raise of hands. Okay, who here has had a broken bone that's been reset? All right, Gene, what was the bone you had reset? Okay, and how did that feel when your finger was reset? It hurt for a while. It hurt, right? So the image here is, is almost like what Jean experienced with her finger. Okay, the doctor is, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to make you better. But first, this is going to hurt. I've got to reset this, okay? And so when God makes us aware of our sin by his spirit, when he shows us what we've done, it can feel crushing, like our bones being crushed. But there's a rejoicing in it because it is the way to forgiveness. It is the way to his grace. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isn't it amazing that David doesn't plead to God and say, okay, Lord, I really screwed up. I'm going to try so much harder. I'm going to be better now. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better now. He says, no. What I need is for you to change this. 
that's the only thing that's going to make me different, is if you change my heart, if you give me a new heart. And that is God's promise. It was our assurance of forgiveness in Ezekiel 36 today, verses 26 and 27. I'll read it again. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know what happens when we walk in God's statutes and we obey his rules? We flourish. Life is good when we do those things. And so God's promise is, I'm not going to tell you to try to do those things. I'm going to give you a new heart that leads you to do those things. I'm going to cause you to flourish. What a beautiful promise. And that promise of Ezekiel 36 is the answer to Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God. God who created Everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. By the power of his word, he makes everything in creation. And by that same word, by that same power, he speaks to his heart, to our hearts, and says, let there be life. Let there be a heart of flesh, a clean heart. It is God alone who can change us. So David's hope we see in verses 12 and 13. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Confessing to others is the picture here. What David wants is not only for his joy to return, but he wants joy for others. He wants to lead others to salvation. He wants to say, I was lost, but now I'm found. So here's the crazy thing. David's sin has been public record for uh, 3,500 years, right? And it's been there throughout history with the hope that there is a return to the joy of salvation. God can use our sin and forgiveness for the benefit of others. And so David says, I want others to know what I've done and the forgiveness that I have received. So I ask you, what uh, or even who, who might benefit from uh, hearing what you've been forgiven from? Who might benefit from hearing what you've been forgiven from? I think our tendency is usually to say like, okay, I did this thing, that's in the past, Nobody needs to know about it. I'm going to just move forward. But David says, no, I want people to know about this because then they'll see how big grace is. They'll see how big God's forgiveness is. David's salvation, David's forgiveness 
is outrageous here. What would Uriah's parents think? What would Bathsheba's family think? This man that took our daughter and killed our son-in-law and now has taken our daughter for, for himself? He's being forgiven? Outrageous, right? Death is what's deserved. And here's the thing. Death is what is given. Let's take a look at Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is a prophecy pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one that was crushed for our iniquities. It was his chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, the wounds of Jesus, we are healed. You see, our sin and David's sin deserves death. And Jesus took that death upon himself for us. And that is good news. And so we must be brought to the place of guilt, but never left there. We're taken to the cross of Jesus because he bore the sentence we deserve. Jesus Christ never sinned. He had no transgressions, no iniquities, yet he took the punishment for those things in our place. It's good news. It's not good advice. Good advice is saying, be a good person and God will like you. But that advice is crushing because we all fail at that. And our failings leave us then in guilt and shame. But Jesus takes us out of those things, out of our guilt, out of our shame, by suffering for what we deserve. And so when we trust in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, then we receive his forgiveness. Has anyone ever uh, seen this chart before? This is a, a super, super helpful, I'm gonna move these stands down a little bit so you can see this uh, even better. I'll move this one to the side. So in the middle here, we have this timeline. It's the timeline of our life. And we've got all this gray on, uh, on this side. And so on one side up here, we have God's holiness. Down here, we have our sin. Now, what happens when we become a Christian is the light of God is shown on us, okay? And so we have then this awareness of God's holiness when we come to faith. And it's this progression that increases. We have an increasing awareness of his holiness. And on the other side, that also brings us to an awareness of our sin. And it's an increasing awareness as we go throughout our lives. And so we see that it's the cross of Jesus 
that bridges this gap between God's holiness and our sin. And the goal is, is the cross should get bigger and bigger for us as we move along in our lives. But here's what happens sometimes. When the cross doesn't get as big as it should be, these gaps, what happens is we, one, lower the standard of God's holiness. Okay, so we pretend, you know what, God isn't actually as holy as, he, as I think he is. Or on the other side, we pretend, you know what, this awareness of my sin, I'm not, I'm not that bad. And so we can pretend or lower the standard to cover the gap. But the goal is that the cross would get bigger. And so we would see grace more and more through this progression in our lives. As we see God's holiness and we see our sin, grace gets bigger. And the cross gets bigger in our lives. And we see our new identity in Christ. And if we don't see that cross getting bigger, it will leave us in this place. With God's holiness, it'll lead us towards religion, legalism, moralism, pride, thinking like, um, you know, I can do these things. I'll lower the standard. Or on the bottom side here, it'll leave us in guilt and shame and fear and despair when we realize, you know what? I have this awareness that the cross isn't uh, covering here. And so again, the goal is that the cross doesn't get smaller and smaller uh, throughout our lives of faith, but it gets bigger and bigger. And so this need for confession is a lead, uh, it's a place to lead us to the cross, to the cross getting bigger, to grace becoming bigger and bigger in our lives. And so if we struggle to receive forgiveness for our sins, we're essentially saying the work of Jesus on the cross uh, is not finished, right? So I'm going to finish it with my own shame and guilt. But if we see his work on the cross is truly finished, then we see the cross so much bigger. If we try to crucify ourselves, beat ourselves up, then we're trying to add to what is already done. The cross covers it all. God asks for a contrite heart and a broken spirit. Does that sound like constant sadness? Here's the thing. A heart that knows how little it deserves um, is a heart that doesn't know how much it's received. So when, we, when God asks for a contrite heart, a broken spirit, he's asking then for you to know how much you've received, to know how big that cross is. So God's grace is free to us through faith, but it is costly. And so to feel the weight of our sin in order to know the depth of God's grace, that is our goal here. When we feel that weight, when we have this progression of knowing more and more uh, our sin, it also leads us to know more and more the grace of God. Okay, so 
were brought to guilt, but were not left there. And so this prayer that David shows us here is a great model for us. So I want to give us, just to review it one more time, kind of the lessons and how to pray confession toward, uh, to God. So one, to appeal to God's mercy. And it's to know his story. To appeal to his mercy is to know his mercy. Two, we've got to own our sin. We've got to be able to say, like David, I've done it. I'm guilty. Three, it's not try harder. It's asking God to change us. Lord, change my heart. Give me a clean heart. Purify my heart. Four, allowing our forgiveness to encourage others. Five, actually practicing this. Practice uh, confessing. I asked our little uh, group when we were um, discussing the question this morning of hearing those words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I asked, did anyone hear that growing up? Did your parents ever come to you and say, I'm sorry, I've done this thing, please forgive me. And no one in our circle had ever heard those words from a parent. And here's the thing, the longer you go without saying those words, the harder they are to say. If you say them often, they become easier and easier to say. If you never say them, those are the hardest words in the world to say. And so by practicing confession with God, it actually helps us to practice it with one another. If I'm daily confessing before God, it's making those words of confession to those around me that much easier. And think about the power of those words. If you're like me and you never heard those words growing up, imagine the power of those words. I know the power of those words to be able to say those to my daughters, to say when I blow it, I am sorry. I did this thing. Will you please forgive me? Because I never heard it, I know exactly how powerful it is and what a gift that is to be able to give to them. And to hear them saying it back to one another regularly, sometimes it's a little forced, that's okay. Sometimes it's beautifully genuine. And to hear that is so delightful. It's so encouraging because I didn't get those words growing up. And so we have to practice those words. Those words will lead us then to a vision for the valley, for this place that we live. That people would come to know our forgiveness, right? That the people we work with, our family, our friends, our neighbors, affinity groups, what if they were to know the forgiveness that we've received? Imagine how that would change our relationships with them. It might bring them to know and love Jesus as Savior. I want to give us a goal, an application goal, over the next three weeks. Um, I want you to think about taking a prayer retreat. 
this was something I did for the first time when I was in seminary. Uh, we had an assignment for a class, and we had to do an eight-hour prayer retreat. And that was terrifying to me. Eight hours of prayer? Like, how would I ever do that? I'd never prayed for eight hours. And so I said, okay, Kirsten, you're going to have to drive me somewhere and leave me there. Because if I have a car, like, I'll cut it short, right? And so she dropped me off in this, uh, this beautiful uh, place called Forest Park. And I stayed there for, for eight hours. And it was one of the most beautiful times, uh, times of closeness to God that I've ever had. So I'm not asking you to take an eight-hour prayer retreat. If you want to, that would be amazing. But maybe take a retreat of um, an hour even, or a couple hours. Or if you want to do eight or anything in between, do that. Take your Bible and go somewhere quiet. Maybe go to the beach Maybe go to the mountains. Maybe sit under a shady tree in a park or in your backyard. And uh, I want you to read through the passages that we've been going through, that we've been studying. And to be still, to be quiet, to listen for God's voice in your heart. You might sing some psalms, uh, hymns, read some psalms. Pray through the scriptures as we've, as we've been talking about. And what I will do this next week is I will email out a, um, a little guide for you. So if you're thinking, how on earth would I eat up even an hour in prayer? I'll send you a guide that could take you anywhere from an hour to eight hours to go through. And um, I want you to share about it too. So at the very least, tell me about it if you uh, do one of these prayer retreats. Um, it'd be amazing for you to even post about it in social media if you're comfortable doing that, uh, to share it with, uh, with one another. Um, so let's try, uh, by the end of this series, for each of us to take a prayer retreat, somewhere between an hour and eight hours, and see what God would do with that. Sound good? All right, well, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the cross and how it gets bigger and bigger. The more we are aware of our sin and aware of your holiness. Lord, we pray for um, just the boldness to confess our sins to you, to one another, that others would be encouraged by the forgiveness that we've received. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged hearing what David has been forgiven, to know that we are never so far gone that you wouldn't welcome us home, Lord. And so, Lord, whether we are uh, experiencing uh, guilt, shame this morning, or if we're coming just prideful and legalistic, would you meet us with your gospel? Would you meet us with the cross and help us to live each day with prayers of repentance? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.